Welcome back to this special season of the Dyson House podcast on global health security. I'm James Caffey with the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. On today's double episode, I'll be speaking in succession to two experts, Professors Catherine Bowen and Tony Capon, on how they, through their relevant work experiences, conceptualize of the multifaceted relationship between climate change and global health security. Hi, Catherine. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, James. Yeah, lovely to speak with you. So before we get into things, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself, what you currently do and your work history. Sure. So I'm a public health person and I've got quite a varied background. I've been working in public health for the last 20 years or so across a wide range of public health fields, including HIV, mental health, women's health, um, surveillance of communicable diseases. But in the last, I suppose, 12, 15 years, my uh, public health work has shifted to global environmental change and the impact of these changes on human health. And the reason why sort of I shifted to that field was, although I was very interested in those other public health fields, I've always had a passion for the environment and sustainability. And I came across the work of Tony McMichael many years ago now, who's one of the pioneers of this field around global environmental change and public health, and basically knocked on his door up at ANU and then linked in with his work and his research group and stayed working with him until he passed away a few years ago, sadly. So I hold academic roles at ANU and at Melbourne University, but I work primarily as an applied researcher, so mainly directly working with ministries of health around the Asia and Pacific region, helping to inform their health policies, but likewise supporting the development of climate change policies in those contexts so that they incorporate an understanding of human health impacts. So most of my work is that advisory role and directly with ministries of health, ministries of agriculture, water, rural development, finance. So it's really a wide spectrum of work in the Asia-Pacific and and most of that work is through the World Health Organization and other UN agencies and also some of the climate funders, so supporting countries to develop their proposals for the big climate funds, including the Global Environment Facility and the Green Climate Fund. And the, the Green Climate Fund, otherwise known as the GCF, is the mechanism through which the, the pledges that were made and that were expected to start rolling out from 2020 of $100 billion per year for both mitigation and adaptation the GCF would primarily be responsible for dispersing those funds. So that's a bit of my background in in a nutshell. Unsurprisingly, based on the subject matter, I'm hoping today to speak to you a bit more about the effects climate change and that type of global weather movement will be having on human health and global health security into the future and some of the intersections between that and the international. So to start us off, I was wondering if you could tell me what you viewed as 
a few of the keystone issues that need to be addressed with climate change and health security, or perhaps a few of the biggest problems that we can expect to arise in the future from climate change in the realm of health? Yeah, so there's a whole range of health impacts that are known that will arise from changes in the climate. So these are from what we call direct and indirect. So direct, some examples of direct impacts are deaths from floods and and heat stress, bushfires, for example, and more indirect effects arise from often impacts via other sectors such as food security arising from the agricultural sector or water security issues arising from the water sector. And it's actually those indirect pathways to health impacts that we expect to have the most burden in terms of health, particularly in low and middle income settings. So it's actually the the fundamental services that humans need in terms of fresh water, sufficient, accessible, affordable food supplies that are really going to be some of the biggest concerns for us into the future. And we're starting to get a better idea of these sorts of impacts, but they're really hard to model with accuracy. So it's something that the health community is, is trying to get to get better at in a way. But really, these are the building blocks for health, that adequate food and water security really are the building blocks for a healthy society. And so it's really important that the health sector does link in very closely with those, with those other provisioning sectors, you could call them, to ensure that their food and water security in particular areas that are, that are dealt with appropriately. You know, a lot of the media does focus on issues around increasing vector-borne diseases, for example, so malaria and dengue, and there's been some modelling to try and better understand the changes we might be able to see in those sorts of diseases, but they really are not as substantial when we compare with, for example, diarrheal diseases that we see as a result of water scarcity So currently a bit under a million children under five die a year due to diarrheal diseases and that's not taking into account climate change. In the health sector we talk about climate change being an amplifier or something that exacerbates current health burden. So really it's about addressing the underlying determinants of health. How can we ensure that communities do have access to clean water and sanitation facilities, particularly in times of extreme weather events, for example? You, you know, so I think it's it's really important to get a good understanding of our baseline levels of health issues, and then we know that climate change will exacerbate most of these. So that's probably the they're probably two of the key health impacts that are really the focus of the health sector. But the other big issue, particularly in our region, is around equity. So the fact that the impacts of climate change will be felt disproportionately on low and middle income countries, in low and middle income countries. It's an issue of equity because it's around the disparity between countries that are the highest emitters 
uh, are generally not feeling the greatest burdens in terms of impacts and risks. So it's a responsibility of developed countries to take a much bigger stand in terms of reducing our emissions, but also supporting countries in a respectful and genuine manner to develop what we call climate resilient pathways or climate resilient development pathways. So how can countries develop in a way that supports them to be resilient to the shocks and stresses that we'll see with ongoing climate change in the future? So I think that the issue of equity is really important. You know, climate change is also talked about as a poverty multiplier and it's something that is an ongoing point of conflict and debate within the Paris Agreement as well. In each negotiation session, there's always a very, very tense and serious discussion around loss and damage in particular. So again, it's the issue of equity and that plays out in our own region in the Asia Pacific. So yeah, that's a really strong focus of mine. So you've identified a few sort of nebulous and and keystone issues that need to be addressed. And it's obvious to me and I think to our listener how these would intersect with the international. A lot of these intersecting factors that would then come to indirectly impact the climate or, or then from climate change would come to indirectly impact health would seem to be related to things which are outside the purview of individual governments, you know, like shared natural resources, tragedy of the commons, that type of thing. So given that, I was wondering what you thought the most important things to happen internationally and between actors now was. Yeah, that's a good question. That's. I think if I had an answer to that, things, or if anyone had an answer to that, we'd be well on our way to success. I think part of the challenge is the fact that the Paris Agreement is not binding and so countries voluntarily develop their NDCs or their nationally determined contributions. As the name states that it's up to the country to to decide what they would like to determine around their greenhouse gas emission reductions. And As we know with the international scenario at the moment, there's probably a lot more disagreement than agreement when it comes to climate change action. The EU is is an exception to that where there's general agreement within the EU countries around the importance of taking climate action. But it's a really rocky road at the moment. It's very much dependent at the moment on two of the biggest players, so China and the US in terms of whether other countries will step up around their climate commitments. So I don't have a nice clear answer for how we how we make it through. The, the only thing I would say is that working in this field day after day, it can get quite demoralising. And so what helps me progress my own work is that I know at a local level that there's a lot of really fantastic activity happening and so even if that isn't always replicated at an, a national level and in national level commitments translating into a, a more ambitious climate 
change action, I do know that these local level activities are making a difference. So, for example, you know, countries are starting to improve the way they or strengthen their surveillance system for diseases, for example. So in the past, surveillance systems that sit within the Ministry of Health have very rarely communicated with um, other sectors. So the example of Bhutan, where I've worked, they had some funds from the Global Environments Facility to pilot a project to try and understand what the links might be between weather and some climate-sensitive health outcomes. So diarrheal diseases, for example, some vector-borne diseases, dengue and malaria. And this was a, a way to strengthen how they actually collect their data around health issues, but also then how they look at weather data. And they were able to start to do some correlations between the two and, and produce some really interesting maps that were starting to show the seasonal relationship between weather and climate-sensitive health outcomes, as we call them. And so with this sort of information across the country in Bhutan, they were then able to start to plan where they might need to shift these surveillance systems to start picking up changes in these correlations that were affecting different parts of the country. So even though there's big, big roadblocks at a global level, I think these examples at a country level that are run in ministries of health with really passionate people who know what they're doing and then they, they can develop really effective partnerships with the Department of Meteorology and they can start to understand and explain the links between weather and climate change and human health and then start to plan and respond to that in the health policies. These sorts of examples really fantastic to realise that change is happening at a local level, particularly that's an adaptation example, but there are also mitigation examples as well. But there's, in general, people working in this field in the health sector are really passionate and, and really want to see themselves making a difference. So, yeah, that's what keeps me going despite the fairly fraught international scenario we're faced with currently. I think also another thing is developing the capacity of colleagues working in, in this particular field and, and really a lot of it is our responsibility in terms of just explaining what the health impacts are, articulating that clearly and articulating the message of, okay, we do need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to ensure a, a safer environment for us all to live in. So that message from the health sector hasn't been incredibly strong to date. The fifth assessment report of the IPCC started to really strengthen that argument, particularly around what we call the co-benefits. So that's when you reduce greenhouse gases, but you also have a positive health benefit arising from that. So, for example, encouraging people to reduce their car use and enabling urban planning so that cycling as a commuting option is available, those sorts of initiatives as well. So the co-benefits piece of work is increasing in terms of its focus and supporting countries to identify what 
co-benefit policies they might be relevant for their context and clean energy sources is another really good example by reducing carbon emissions we can improve air quality and that's really a really important issue and we've seen through the COVID-19 pandemic that the improvement in air quality has been commented on at many different scales the local national and international scale and perhaps that's going to encourage people to start to think about whether or the importance of clean air for us and and whether or not we can think of this as something that we can sustain. What do you think that Australia's role is to play as a country? What can we do not just for ourselves in improving the climate policy that we see federally and on a state basis but what can we do in terms of advocacy and capacity building in other countries? We need to, as a country, really take our position as part of the Asia-Pacific region very, very seriously when it comes to action on climate change. Countries do look to Australia for support and advice and it's challenging to provide that support and advice when at the same time our own house is not in order in a way. So I think to some degree our support of neighbouring countries in the Asia-Pacific is somewhat compromised by the fact that we don't and we haven't yet taken a proper stand on um, climate change as a country. There are some really great uh, initiatives that we have supported and there's more and more interest from the Australian government to look at climate change and human health as a priority issue in the Pacific particularly. And I've been working with the Australian government on how countries in the Pacific can start to think about strengthening their health system using a climate lens really. So again, it comes back to okay the fundamental building blocks of a health system which, you know, the WHO defines six fundamental building blocks of a health system. One is financing, one is leadership and governance, another one is health workforce, health information systems, service delivery, and the final one is medicine or medical products. And so these are what we call the building blocks of the health system. And so looking at those building blocks that we know have to function effectively to provide a useful health system, how do we consider climate change across all those as well? So how do we consider an appropriate health workforce during an extreme weather event, for example? How do we ensure that our health information system does start to incorporate weather data, such as that example I gave you about Bhutan? Yeah, that's all really interesting. It's important not to put the cart before the horse in that regard. And I think that sort of reviewing the fundamentals before starting to eat with our eyes is is definitely a good approach and also a good note on which to end our conversation. Thank you very much for joining me today, Catherine. Welcome, Tony, to the Dyson House podcast. Terrific to be with you today, James. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on. So I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a little bit about 
your experience specifically with climate change? My current post at Monash University is directing the Sustainable Development Institute. I also hold a chair in planetary health in the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine. I first became concerned about the health impacts of climate change when I was working with Tony McMichael at Australian National University in the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health. And Tony uh, was the first epidemiologist in the world to connect climate change to health outcomes. And he was really way ahead of his time. As long ago as 1993, uh, more than 25 years ago, he wrote a book called Planetary Overload, which was about the changes that we're making to the and what it means um, for human health, well-being, and indeed survival. In 2013, I moved to Kuala Lumpur to direct the Global Health Institute at UN University. That was the time, of course, that we began uh, shaping the new development agenda, and we now, of course, have uh, the Sustainable Development Goals. It was a terrific opportunity to be leading the Global Health Institute at that time, a great honour indeed, and UN University is quite an unusual organisation. It's a relatively small part of the UN system as a whole, but importantly, the difference uh, for UN University is that the funding is held in trust, and this means that any single nation-state can't direct the work of the UN University Institutes. They're overseen by independent boards. The headquarters of UN University is in Tokyo, and the university was established in the 1970s following recommendations from Uthant, uh, the Burmese diplomat who was concerned that decision-making about global issues by the UN system and by member states of the UN was too politicized and wasn't based on the best available evidence. So Uthant proposed a university for the United Nations that would build knowledge and capacity for that decision-making about these big global challenges. And there are now more than 10 institutes uh, in the UN university system, and they're each hosted by specific countries, whether that country is prepared to invest money in the UN university trust fund and not direct how the money's used. What do you perceive the role of those institutions in alleviating some of the issues posed by climate change? Yeah, so really the uh, UN University 
institutes function as think tanks for the UN. So they bring fresh ideas into uh, UN decision-making. They're a bridge between the UN system and leading academic groups around the world. From a human health point of view, uh, a key issue, of course, is health security. And one of the things that we focused on when I was at uh, UN University was what we call the ecological determinants of health. When we think about human health, we're quite good at uh, biomedical understandings of health, understanding and finding new treatments uh, for diseases. But we're not so good at really thinking about the broader context of health and well-being. Uh, Michael Marmot and others at the World Health Organization had a commission on the social determinants of health some years ago now, and that um, has really been quite helpful at bringing this understanding of the social foundations of health into sharper focus, but the ecological determinants of health are largely overlooked. And by this, I mean things like the stability of our climate, uh, biodiversity, uh, ecosystems, and their importance for health and well-being. What do you perceive to be the largest issue facing global health security from climate change? There's no doubt that climate change is a major health issue. Indeed, uh, the Lancet Medical Journal has argued that climate change is the leading global health challenge of this century. Climate change affects health in a number of ways. Uh, the direct effects of extreme weather events, for example, pretty easy to understand. Whether it's the extreme bushfires that we had in Australia last summer, or whether it's the health impacts of tropical cyclones and typhoons, like uh, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines some years ago, for example. It's clear that these extreme weather events have very significant direct impacts on people's health and importantly also impacts on people's livelihoods with flow-on impacts on, on health. Mm. There's a second important category of health impacts though, and we sometimes call these system-mediated health impacts on climate change. For example, uh, changes in the distribution and abundance of mosquitoes can lead to a changing distribution of vector-borne diseases like Ross River fever, for example, dengue fever, malaria. We're seeing malaria at higher altitudes, for example, in some parts of the world than ever before. There are, though, really important flow-on impacts from kinds of health issues for human health and well-being, and this is through broader disruptions um, 
to economies, uh, to society more generally. And I guess uh, an emblematic example is happening in low-lying Pacific Island countries, um, indeed in uh, large Delta cities in uh, East and South Asia, Dhaka, in Bangladesh, for example. So climate change, its broader context, including sea level rise, extreme weather events, uh, meaning that many people uh, risk being displaced uh, in the context of this changing climate. And that will have enormous implications uh, for clearly their physical health and well-being, but also their mental health and well-being, loss of livelihoods, uh, disruption of social networks, and uh, the many flow-on consequences, including potential for conflict uh, in this context. What do you see as Australia's role in dealing with that displacement? Australia is part of a broader community of nations, and we need to take our responsibility in this context very seriously. So we certainly need to be open to respond to the needs of people in other countries who are displaced in the context of climate change. Notably, we should also carefully reflect on uh, our continuing reliance on the burning of coal to make energy in Australia, but also relying on coal as a major source of export income. And this is just not a reasonable thing to do given the health consequences of burning coal. And here I'm not just referring to the health impacts of climate change from the carbon emissions that come from the burning of coal. I'm also referring to the direct health consequences from the toxic emissions produced by the burning of coal. And we know from the Lancet Commission on Health and Climate Change that each year there are more than 400,000 premature deaths around the world as a result of the burning of coal. That's a very compelling figure when you consider that to this point, we haven't got to a level of deaths from this coronavirus pandemic that exceed the number of people that will die this year from the toxic effects of the burning of coal. And that just is not a one-off. It's currently happening every year, and Australian coal is part of that. We are responsible for tens of thousands of those premature deaths every year. That's suddenly an indictment on the position of Australia in that ecosystem. What do you think the most tenable solutions to global health security issues raised by climate change are? Does it just need to be a larger focus on preventing climate change? Certainly, um, uh, 
understanding health impacts of climate change helps to make a compelling argument for urgent action on climate change because we know that health is already being affected by climate change, particularly the health of people living in low and middle income countries. Climate change is not a future abstract issue. It's already having health effects and we uh, can talk to those people. We can understand their personal stories of those health impacts. What do you think the most promising um, new innovations or approaches to helping with climate change or, or the health-related impacts of climate change are? Yes, certainly from a, a global health security perspective, our understanding of what we call health co-benefits from action on climate change are really important. We need to tackle climate change to prevent it getting worse. For example, the transition uh, to renewable energy generation, the transition to plant-based diets from uh, diets that are very high in meat, for example. Both of these things will have additional near-term health benefits. So I've referred to the example before of the transition to renewable energy generation, less toxic pollution at the same time as it's less carbon emissions. Similarly, uh, with the transition to a plant-based diet, uh, less footprint on the earth from producing that food, whether it's carbon emissions or other aspects of that environmental footprint, such as water, for example, and at the same time, better for human health and well-being now. Another good example is the transition to walking and cycling in our large cities around the world, getting people out of motor cars and walking and cycling safely in cities. That's less carbon emissions from that urban transport, less air pollution in the city, and also more physical activity, which has a range of physical and mental health benefits. So understanding, if you like, these no regrets approach in the context of climate change is helps to provide a really positive message for action on climate change. Sort of like a, a comorbidity of positive impacts from actually starting to deal with these issues. Do you think we have a shot at alleviating the worst of these impacts or has the ship already sailed in your mind? It's important to remain hopeful. Clearly, um, it's concerning when we see uh, the response of the current Australian government and indeed, frankly, successive uh, Australian governments in recent years, a reluctance to be on the front foot in tackling climate change. That's clearly unsettling and particularly unsettling for young people who will live with this challenge for most of their lives now. But I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning if I wasn't hopeful that we could change, that we could act. And I think we are seeing in Australia and around the world 
more interest in getting on with tackling climate change. And it's not necessarily coming out of our governments and our parliaments. As some of our states are doing better than others. As, as I said, the national government is really yet to sufficiently engage. Local governments have been engaged in this kind of effort since as early as the 1980s with Agenda 21, that global cooperation in the context of the first summit in Rio. Notably, too, in Australia and in some other countries, uh, the private sector is already stepping up and the private sector isn't always a bad guy in this context. There are many people uh, in uh, private industry who are concerned about these issues and just want to get on and contribute, but they need governments um, to provide a regulatory environment in which uh, uh, the necessity uh, for change is recognised. What do you think the role of international collaboration in dealing with climate change is? It's critical that we work in partnership with all other nations around the world. It's critical that we can step into the shoes of people living in other countries, whether it's people living in low-lying Pacific Island countries, uh, whether it's people uh, living in East or South Asia, for example, whether it's people living in Africa, or indeed um, people living in other high-income countries. Action on climate change is a shared responsibility around the world. And even though our population is relatively small compared to other parts of the world, our per capita carbon emissions, our per capita footprint on the earth is among the highest. And that means we have a special responsibility to act and to act now. So, Tony, are there any special ways that you see Australia being able to contribute knowledge to some of the issues we're facing or any special areas we could look at to get that knowledge from? One of the areas is Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous ways of knowing about the world and our place in the world. And here in Australia, of course, Indigenous cultural burning has been practised um, by Indigenous people on these lands for millennia. And this came into sharp relief, of course, some last summer with the unprecedented raging bushfires that we had in the southeast of Australia. And for the first time, we've got people seriously talking about Indigenous cultural burning as a potential alternate way of managing our land to help prevent the worst of these fires. Research um, done here in Australia and elsewhere has shown that this cultural burning actually reduces the amount of carbon emissions, the amount of toxic emissions, the extent of the devastation of fires, because on the whole, there's smaller, more regular burns rather than devastating 
raging burns. So that's just one good example of Indigenous knowledge uh, accrued over millennia that we could potentially benefit from as we strive for sustainable development. Some of the knowledge doesn't require modern uh, technological and scientific approaches. Some of the knowledge is a wisdom of the ages. Yeah, that's really that's a really hopeful outlook, actually. Thank you for sharing that. So for a final question, are there any specific models of governance or things that have been done around the world that you think Australia could really look to as a model for engaging with global health issues or climate change? Yes, James. One uh, good example, I think, is the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in Wales, in the United Kingdom. This was new legislation in 2015 at the time that we all countries signed up to the Sustainable Development Goals, and it was legislation that required the government of Wales to think about the implications of their decisions for future generations, not just for people currently alive, uh, not just for people who could vote for them at the next election, but what's the legacy of this decision-making for future generations of Welsh people. I think all countries should have this kind of legislation. And I'd hope uh, that as we reflect on the bushfires, on the pandemic, that the Australian government and our states think about how they might enact similar legislation. Thank you very much for participating and agreeing to give me some of your time. Oh, no worries, James. It was an absolute pleasure. Tony and Catherine presented very harmonious accounts of the relationship between climate change and global health, ones underpinned by a sober acknowledgement of the situation and reference to reasons for hope in our capacity to rectify some of the health impacts internationally. Until next time, when we'll be speaking to another pair of experts in our second double episode thus far on globalisation, pandemics and international relations.